down, but but he could be dead. I, re I really don't hey, know. Hey, ma'am, where are you? Covered in blood, he's naked. It, it looked like somebody tried to kill him. I, I don't know. Calm down, ma'am. We'll send an ambulance. Oh my God! Oh my God! Well, hey there. Welcome back. Glad you could join us for this week's episode. If you're new here, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of Not Another Horror Podcast. You know, last week we talked about the Stanford Prison Experiment and just how powerful the human brain can be. Well, tonight we are going to explore a case of amnesia. And I'm not talking about one from a soap opera. This case of amnesia will last for 27 years. That 911 call you heard was just the beginning. Buckle up because we are headed to Georgia right after this. Hey there, it's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and I just want to have a quick heart-to-heart with you. Now, you've probably been wanting to start your own podcast, but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start. And trust me, I get it. There are a lot of options out there. It's almost overload. But today I'm going to tell you about the easiest way, and that is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress-free. No complicated software or membership fees. It's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. The time, August 31st, 2004. The place, Richmond Hill, Georgia. In the early hours that day, a man would be found naked, beaten, sunburned, and unconscious behind a Burger King. He was surrounded by ants that were creating a rash all over his body. After the 911 call was placed, an ambulance would come pick him up. He was completely out of it, alive but barely conscious. As the days passed, he became a very difficult patient. Once he gained consciousness, he refused to open his eyes and also refused to eat. He didn't like to be touched, especially on his chest. If someone tried, he would become very violent towards them. On the eighth day, he cursed at the nurses, calling them beasts and demons. When they tried to get near him, he swung his fist and spit Doe asked to see a priest, then told him that he was also an imposter. You're all devils, he murmured. Since he had no documents, he was recorded in hospital records as Burger King Doe, or BK Doe. 
It seemed as if he was from an alternate universe and was dumped here as an experiment. The police, of course, would begin investigating. They ran his fingerprints and nothing came back. He had no ID and no memory of who he was. So they were just as confused as the rest of us. Doe was transferred to the psychological ward at Memorial, a public hospital across town. They sent him back to the hospital where he would stay for a few months. They noted that he was in very poor shape. For example, he had cataracts so bad in his eyes that he was basically blind. When they found him, he had very long, dirty fingernails, long hair, and a long beard, and was very scraggly looking. Medical records were no help either. You see, the only thing the x-rays found was a pin in his arm from a broken arm that he had one time in his life. But the pin was so common it would be impossible to trace it. In January 2005, Doe was transferred to the J.C. Lewis Primary Healthcare Center, a residence for the homeless and indigent in downtown Savannah. Once he was in the shelter, he started to think that he remembered his name. He was tired of being called the B.K. Doe, which I'm sure anyone would be, and went with the name Benjamin, spelled with two A's for whatever reason. He says that he remembers that being his first name, but he couldn't remember his surname or his middle name, so he went with the surname Kyle. And Benjamin Kyle is what I will be referring to him as from here on out. The nurses that worked at the shelter enjoyed being around him and loved trying to help him remember who he was. They said that he was very intelligent and also loved to read sci-fi books. Soon, more memories would start to come back to Benjamin, but they were very specific memories. For example, he remembered the July 4th Blood, Sweat, and Tears concert with a DSO at Red Rocks in 1976. He remembered buying a gas valve from a supplier of parts for commercial stoves in Denver. He remembered that the best Mexican restaurant in Denver was Mama Elena, and the worst was a restaurant called Alzar. He remembers seeing the 1970 movie Car Wash at a theater in Denver. Man, I hate for that to be the only movie I remembered watching. He remembered moving to Boulder, Colorado just before a big flood. He also remembered looking at the outside of the Fountain Square Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana. Just random memories. Nothing that could really identify him, but at least now we know two things. He has lived in Colorado and Indiana at one point. I myself find it interesting that out of all the memories in his life, these are what came to the surface. Man, memories are weird. One day in the shelter, he would hear a Michael Jackson song and remember that his birthday was August 29th, 1948. And he remembered that because his birthday was exactly 10 years before Michael Jackson's birthday. Yes, he shared a birthday with the King of Pop. And I'd probably remember that too. After a while at the shelter, he basically became an employee and took on a custodian role. 
Since he had cataracts so bad, he could barely see how to mop the floor. He had to slowly mop the area around his feet. Let's just say it took him a while, but he got it done. Two years after Kyle arrived at the shelter, Catherine Slater, a middle-aged nurse with a warm, grandmotherly manner, began working night shifts. Kyle was often up late and the two became close. Slater wasn't sure she believed he had amnesia, but she felt badly that he had been separated from his family. She was also a former accountant and liked to solve problems. So she took it upon herself to find out his real identity. She decided to help Kyle figure out who he was, and she thought that it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> Boy, was she about to be very wrong. For years, every attempt to restore Benjamin Kyle's identity ended in failure. Police, the FBI, journalists, missing persons reports, countless amateur detectives, they all tried to figure out who Kyle was, and they all wound up stumped. Incredibly, the man seemed to lack not just a legal name, but also a past. The government could find no record of Kyle's previous life. Even more mysteriously, no one seemed to recognize him. His picture appearing repeatedly on television and the internet was viewed by millions, yet not a single person stepped forward to say they knew him. I find this odd because... We live in an age of extraordinary surveillance and documentation. The government's capacity to keep tabs on us and our capacity to keep tabs on each other is unmatched in human history. Big data, NSA, wiretapping, social media, camera phones, credit scores, criminal records, drones. We watch and watch and record our every move. And yet here was a man who appeared to exist outside of all of that. Someone who had escaped the modern age's matrix of observation. After he received a donation from a charity, he would eventually get cataract surgery and regain his sight. It's noted that one of the first things he did was look in the mirror and discuss because he couldn't believe how old he was. He thought he was in his 20s or 30s, but was in his late 50s or early 60s. Catherine reached out to the FBI to help and that was a dead end, but fun fact, Benjamin is the only person to have been on the missing persons list who isn't actually missing. You see, the FBI knew exactly where he was. They thought that they had their big break when they got a message from a producer on Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil wanted to bring Kyle onto the show and he had them take all these tests and just anything to make sure that Benjamin Kyle was not faking this. They even brought in a hypnotist to try to recover his lost memories. Nothing worked. The time would eventually come for Benjamin to move out of the homeless shelter. He had nowhere else to go though. He couldn't get a job because he had no paperwork, and according to the government, without the right paperwork, he just did not exist. So, of course, Catherine had him move in with her. He didn't like being a bother, so he was basically her live-in handyman. Anything she needed fixed, he would try to fix. 
It turns out he was actually very good at fixing things and basically had a random, almost expert knowledge of restaurant equipment. It sounds kind of like a clue to me. <laughs> In February 2009, Catherine Slater heard from a woman named Colleen Fitzpatrick, who calls herself a genealogical detective. She received a PhD in physics from Duke University and later started her own optics company in her garage, where she made laser measurement equipment for NASA. In the early 1990s, she took up genealogy, writing several books explaining how to use public records and DNA databases to explore your family history. Soon, she began consulting on tricky genealogy cases. She helped identify the remains of a child found on the Titanic and identified a person from an arm preserved in the Alaskan snow since a 1948 plane crash. When a colleague asked her to consult on Kyle's case, she, of course, quickly agreed. She took Benjamin's DNA and did some digging of her own on 23andMe and found a connection with a family with the surname of Powell on the East Coast. But she wasn't able to connect the dots and the trail went cold. The search went on up until 2011, and after four years, Catherine would ask Benjamin to leave. Benjamin had overstayed his welcome. You see, it turns out Benjamin was also a hoarder, so you can only imagine how stressful things must have been between the two. Add that to the fact she no longer trusted him and felt he had no interest in finding out who he was, well, it equal to a pretty bad falling out. So Benjamin would make his way to Jacksonville, Florida, where he would try to stay at another homeless shelter, but he got turned away because he did not have a valid photo ID. There was basically nothing he could do because he didn't have paperwork, couldn't even get a place to stay, so he ended up sleeping in a tent in a field behind the police station. Kyle's situation had become dire. The Social Security Administration had informed him that he was barred from receiving a new number as it was assumed that he had already been issued one. As a result, he was ineligible for government benefits or food stamps. In losing his legal identity, Kyle has suffered a kind of civil death. Though a de facto resident of the United States, he was effectively a man without a country trapped in a bureaucratic purgatory. He saw a flyer for a student film and reached out to the student, and that student made a short documentary called Finding Benjamin. It actually played at the Tribeca Film Festival, but it still didn't lead to someone recognizing him. Something good would come out of this, though. A man named Josh Strutt, who owned the Crazy Fish restaurant, gave Benjamin a job and a place to stay. After this, he cut off all contact with Colleen Fitzpatrick. Now this seemed to be pretty common for Benjamin at this point. Whenever someone seemed to get close to finding his identity, he would break contact with them. He didn't seem interested in finding out who he really was, and that raised some eyebrows. Colleen said herself that she didn't trust him anymore. She said that all these people trying to help him don't realize he could be dangerous and could be anybody. Nobody knows. Benjamin would reply to that on Facebook. He sent out a response that said he wasn't hiding anything. 
He said he cut off contact with Colleen because she refused to share his DNA and genealogy information with him because she didn't want anyone else solving it before her so she could finish her book. Cece Moore would soon enter the chat. You see, Cece was also a genealogist and said that Colleen was actually acting very unethical and Colleen responded with Cece isn't comfortable with her own accomplishments so she had to try and steal mine then called her an actress drama <laughs> but Cece turned out to be a lot better at this than Colleen you see Cece got in touch with one of the Powell family members before a family reunion and that family member was able to get samples from everyone at the reunion with these DNA sample, CC was able to determine that there was a misidentified person in the Powell family tree. There was a family member that split off the tree and moved to Indiana. CC tracked down a 1967 yearbook in Lafayette, Indiana, and in the yearbook, she found a black and white photo of Benjamin. His real name was William Burgess Powell. And just like that, the mystery is solved. Or is it? You see, this would lead to an even bigger mystery. Why in the hell has nobody been looking for him? <laughs> he had two brothers that were very much still alive. And it turns out, they did look for him. In 1976 when he originally went missing. You see, Benjamin had entered what is known as an amnesia dissociative state. People in these states suffer from a voluntarily erasure of memory. They take on new personalities, new names, travel a lot, and for some reason, abstain from sex. And here's another interesting thing. If they're confronted with their old identity while living their new identity, well, Let's just say it doesn't yield a good result. <laughs> it can actually cause a psychological break. So yeah, not good. You're probably sitting there wondering, is this really a real thing? Let me Google it. Well, it happens more than you think it does. Some missing people are found living completely different lives with no memory of who they are and don't even know that they are missing. It's basically the brain's way of protecting itself from being overwhelmed. According to his brother, Furman Powell, William was their mom's favorite, and their dad did not take that too well. You see, his dad was an alcoholic and often took his anger out on William. He basically received daily beatings. At 16, William would move out and move in with a family friend. When he graduated, he moved into a trailer not far from his family home. He still had dinner with the family every night until one night in 1976 where he just disappeared. The family found his car down by the river next to the dam, so the family feared the worst. The police ended up tracking him down in Boulder, Colorado, working at a restaurant called Azar. The same one he remembered hating so much but had no idea why. The family would try to reach out to him and he never responded. So after a few years, 
They just let it go. They assumed he didn't want to talk to them or he had died because the last time they saw him he was drinking and smoking heavily. The last person to actually see him was Chico Goetz. That was his best friend and they moved to Boulder, Colorado together. A reporter by the name of Matt Wolf called Chico. Chico, who was now living in Missouri, was asked if he remembered a man named William Powell. Man, said Goats. Sure. I remember Uncle Willie. After work, Goats explained he and Powell used to drink cheap whiskey and talk about everything. Powell was a loner. He had few companions, no romantic partner. Goats figured he had been Powell's closest friend, if only by default. We were a couple of drunks, Ghost told me. We did what drunks do, but we weren't close. It's actually kind of sad. Their decision to leave Indiana had been a very impulsive one. One Sunday night, after several hours of drinking, Ghost proposed that they move to Boulder. Powell had recently received a small settlement from a previous employer after he slipped on an icy dock and broke his arm. Feeling flushed, he agreed. They packed a few possessions into Ghost's Toyota, then drove through the night and into the next day, across Illinois, Missouri, and the vast cornfields of Kansas. Why Boulder? Matt asked. Because it wasn't Indiana, Goat said. In Colorado, they worked at fast food restaurants. Goat stayed for a year, then returned to Lafayette. Powell remained in Colorado, despite much effort. Matt could find no one in Colorado who knew William Powell or Benjamin Nacal, or anyone matching his description. The restaurants where he worked had closed years ago and their employment records were lost. Social security records show him earning money at several restaurants from 1977 to 1983 around Denver, but after that, it just stops. It seems that he just vanished into thin air. To this day, there is still a 27-year gap of memories that he has never recovered and nobody has came forward to say they knew him or worked with him. He has nearly no memory of his life after the 1980s, including how he ended up in Georgia. One event he does remember is reading about the September 11 attacks. When asked by doctors to recall the President of the United States, he was able to recall only those from the 20th century. And to top it all off, he still doesn't know who beat the hell out of him. Now, to me, some things seem a little odd. For example, the website FindingBenjamin.com, which was dedicated to the search for his identity, randomly disappeared just before he announced that his identity had been found. Colleen also noted that there was often a kind of blankness to him, a distance that was most pronounced at odd moments, especially when he was pressed about what he remembered from his past. His lack of effect was difficult to interpret. Was he unconcerned about his identity because he was faking his amnesia? Or was he trying to maintain his composure in the face of a great pain? Slater wondered whether under the surface he was feeling more than he let on. It just makes me wonder what was going on in that head of his. Two months later, at the end of 2015, 
Powell decided to move back to Indiana. His brother, he feared, was becoming increasingly frail and couldn't take care of the house alone. Powell packed all his possessions, his bike, his tools, 1,200 DVDs, and some cooking supplies salvaged from the restaurant into a moving truck, paid for by the reality TV producers who were filming him at the time. He found a little two-bedroom house in a working-class neighborhood of Lafayette, a five-minute bike ride from his childhood home. Powell feared that more memories from before, from the life he cannot remember, would start returning once he'd settled down in Lafayette. I'm worried about what the memories will be when they come back. I'm sure they won't all be good. Sometimes, Powell wondered whether it had been wise to return home. He found himself visited by new unwanted emotions, but not emotions precisely, but memories of them. Things he felt as a child that as an adult he preferred not to describe. Such feelings, he thought, were better left buried in his brain. Personal memories encoded during these states are generally never recovered. Sadly, he may never remember his 20 years that have gone missing. There is still one more thing I was curious about. Why did he think his name was Benjamin? Well, when asked, he had an answer for that. He said, I read somewhere that it comes from Old Hebrew. It means beloved son. Well, guys, what a story. And trust me, for the month of February, I will have a lot of stories that you will not believe. And if you miss the show during the week, just remember that we always have a bonus episode that comes out every Sunday. A mini episode that I have titled The Campfire Chronicles, where I tell you a scary urban legend around a campfire. If you like the show, remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. It helps the show get discovered by new listeners. If you want to support the show, you can always click on the link in the show notes to buy us a coffee or support us on Anchor. Stay safe, stay sane, and keep that idea on you, please.